0: You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Acting Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. they into Teslas as well as that chief Wagoneer from way back when. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of vulnerability there, and cybersecurity of these cars is is a huge issue. And that's that's part of the transition from this DSRC that was desired to the 5G that the companies want. It's, the 5G is a lot more vulnerable than the DSRC would be because the DSRC was designed to be um, isolated and anonymous. So yeah, it's a real problem. And I mean, the really slimy thing about that was the FCC discouraged Toyota. That was gonna put DSRC communicators in all their cars FCC said, ah, you really shouldn't do that because you know it's likely to be reallocated in the future. Georgia was gonna put this DSRC communication system into a widespread set of sensors and they actually applied for licenses to do that with the FCC. FCC refused to act on the license applications because they, they, they didn't want to set the precedent of having widespread vehicle-to-vehicle communications um, or vehicle through infrastructure communications, so it was really a really a slimy nefarious approach that the FCC took. I don't know why that was allowed to happen, but it but it did happen. What does what
1: DSRC stand for?
0: Distributed software something, Michael. I,
1: I here, let me look I it up. Be, <laughs> okay. But Were it's, any of the manufacturers against this, or is it this came down to more of the FCC making things nice for Verizon?
2: I think it's, I, I mean, ultimately, I think it's because Verizon and AT&T actually mm-hmm. have the biggest swing, and you know what's on the block when it comes to what they want to get done in D.C., and the manu- all the manufacturers couldn't compete. Um we tend to think of the auto manufacturers as giants, but I think when they come up against really big tech or really big phone, um, they run into some problems getting what they want.
0: Yeah, so DSRC is dedicated short range communication service. And uh, that was designed to be used for, for cars. So here's what happened. The company started to promote 5G and it showed all these applications where there was instant communication and you know surgeons were communicating with people in cars and and all this stuff right so they they said in the future everything will be better so it was a classic case of letting uh better be the enemy of good and and they sold it on that basis saying well we don't need this dsrc this old-fashioned crap because as 5G is coming like a steamroller down the road and, you know, everybody's going to be so communicated and so connected. We won't need any of this old crap. And uh, what's the timeline for getting
1: this 5G amazing future in place?
0: Oh, uh, who knows? 10, 20, 30 years, you know, and uh, the, the, again, the deceptive thing about 5G is it's not one thing. 5G is a whole set of communication protocols and 5G without, the millimeter wave transmitters uh, is as slow as the 3G, basically, or you know maybe the 4G, but the high-speed DSR, the high-speed 5G relies on millimeter wave transceivers that are gonna be built into uh, you know, various areas. But the problem is they've only got very short range because millimeter wave transmissions don't diffract very well. Uh, so you've got to be basically within the line of sight of one of these things in order to use the high-speed communications from the 5G. They've, so they've all got to be connected by a high-speed backbone, right, in order to uh, have any ability to communicate at high speed. So in rural areas, you basically have to wire all the telephone poles with fiber optic uh, cable and fiber optic modems before you can connect them to the high-speed millimeter-wave transceivers that are the heart of the high-speed 5G system. Blah, 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 a lot of, lot of techie crap. But anyway, it's, it'll never happen that the rural areas have got the high-speed 5G. It's just never, it's never gonna happen because they can't bear the cost of the, the millimeter-wave transceivers on distributed telephone poles in areas that don't have a lot of people. Man, it's just never going to happen.
1: And the, the 5G millimeter wave stuff, I mean, that gets interfered with by rain, snow, like it's, is that, yeah, a, rain,
0: that rain, snow, uh, physical structures? Yeah.
1: I mean, so in, in this situation where you want these safety features the most, they're just going to fail automatically. Like if I'm driving in a snowstorm, you know, I, I want all this communication happening and that's just going to break it down
0: well maybe hardly ever but yeah you can't rely on it and
1: oh, wow. i was thinking like we were talking about uh last episode because now we're in the next episode i don't know if you noticed that uh, um the uh we we're talking about you know the unregulated bandwidth with wi-fi so wi-fi you know you get a range of a hundred feet or so roughly like I mean, you could boost it and you can get maybe 150 200. Right. Uh, so, uh, for a car I really only need a hundred feet around me in a circumference around me um, because you
2: actually going I'd, I'd rather have you know a few hundred yards
1: <laughs> right but I'm um, yeah sure I, I'd like to have the entire you know uh, map set up I mean Google actually probably has this data with everybody using their maps because it will you know hey there's a crash two miles ahead reroute you off I mean they're already doing that and the worst one they always say to me is, there's an object in the road up ahead. And so that I'm paranoid for I don't know how many miles because it doesn't tell me where or what or how. But it does tell me where speed traps are, which is great. It gets it wrong half the time. But anyway, so uh, so uh, why, So, why? if it was something like Wi-Fi where you can boost it to, say, 200 feet, um, uh, would something like that be useful or is it just kind of like it? this is – this horse has already left the barn and it's joined a circus.
0: Well, at 60 miles an hour, you're traveling at 88 feet per second. So 100 feet gives you roughly one second of lead time. Okay, is that enough? Uh, it might be enough for certain purposes, but- All the way people drive it, they're trying to you know,
1: force me off the road, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's not a lot, not a lot of margin there.
1: All right. So I guess that's that's not going to work for us, huh? That's more of just my fantasy. <laughs> I, mean,
2: I think you'd rather, you'd rather have it than not, right? At least right. there's a chance.
0: Yeah, some right. is good, more is better. But what the DSRC was, was promising to do is it would allow you to – or allow the car to know that there is a, a car coming at a blind intersection – Right, it's moving in an area where you can't see it, but the car knows where it is, and the car knows it's coming. And so, as as this other person is preparing to run the stop sign that you can't see right now, your car would know a uh, long enough in advance so we could automatically put the brakes on. I mean, that was that was kind of what the DSRC was looking to do, and it was the applications that Georgia was looking to put in place when the FCC denied it, the licenses to implement that technology. So, Has uh, the
1: FCC changed under Biden? Is this, cause this sounds like very kind of a, uh, like uh, George Bush's FCC with Michael Powell, handing out everything to corporations you know, back in the day.
2: My general sense is, and I'm certainly no expert on the FCC, but my general sense is that, um, the FCC is really friendly with big phone and big tech right now. So I don't know. They're one of those that, you know, with NHTSA, we do see changes depending on how deregulatory the administration is. Um, FCC right now, not a lot of change. There's a, a, a lot of power in, in big phone and big tech in America right now.
0: The people who are recruited for FCC leadership generally come from the telecommunication companies. The and then they revolve
1: back to that telecommunication company. Right. With a big promotion, yes. Right, right. Um, okay, so I think what we've learned from this lesson is we should all invest into uh, fiber optic cable companies, stringing lines in rural areas, because that sounds like it's going to be a good growth industry, maybe.
2: Yeah, it's it's going to be needed. I don't know if it's going to get the investment It's it's going to require.
1: I admire your optimism. <laughs> well, I'm drunk. No. Um, So, okay. So, uh, we're going to start this episode talking about Mm -hmm. rust, salt, and heat. Let's jump into that. Um, Michael, you're saying geographic recalls are still allowed, but they ignore the fact that cars are built to move.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's you know that's that's always been our our contention on those things, and we actually took NHTSA to court probably 15 years ago on it, and we lost. But you know our point still remains. You know how can a car be defective in Wisconsin if it's not defective? You know 400 miles south. Um, and all of these geographic recalls are a little different. Some are related to rust, um, salt-heavy areas. Um, some are related to heat. Um, windshield, but,
0: you know, windshield firing is a good one.
2: Yeah. Anytime a manufacturer wants to limit the scope of a recall and save a lot of money repairing vehicles, this is one of the tools they pull out of their toolkit to try to show that these things are only happening in this one spot and you don't have to worry about other people out there. They almost all tried it with Takata airbags right when that came out. They all were saying, oh, this is just gonna happen and maybe Florida, Puerto Rico, maybe Hawaii somewhere. We're just gonna limit these to these spots. And so it's a really sneaky tactic. It's something that they do strictly to save money and long-term, even if your vehicle isn't in Buffalo, New York, if it's exposed, on a, on a vacation or you're down at the beach saltwater I and mean, there's a lot of ways for corrosion things to happen and you know a defect is a defect is a defect is a defect to us in many ways because cars do move in and out of these different environments and so you know when there is a recall we think they should be applied to every vehicle that meets those criteria not not restricted geographically
1: do you often take vacation in buffalo new york is that is that what you're saying that people take vacations to buffalo new york
2: you know, I've never been to Buffalo, but I know I've met some fine people from up there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's good, but I don't think that's you know vacation. I lived there once, and you know, it was lovely. <laughs> um, wait, so ha, ha, there's there had to be at least one lawsuit around this where somebody you know had a car in Phoenix goes up to Buffalo and that local recall um must have destroyed their well,
2: car. if somewhere. you moved and you're now registered in buffalo then you qualify
1: so oh, no, you're saying yeah, i went to on vacation there because i wanted to see niagara falls
2: yeah but but you have to actually be registered in that state to qualify for the recall um, that w- that's usually the qualification in the recall notice so if i moved from mississippi to Maine, I would then qualify for assault recall. I mean, if I wanted to do it just for a month, register my car, get my recall repaired, then move back to Mississippi, that would work. That's not really practical for most Americans. Um, and that's why we think you know recall should be applied across the board because it's, it's, I think it would be very rare to actually be able to prove that a defect's only gonna occur in, in a certain part of the country. And most of these things, you know, given kind of the lesson learned from, from the Takata situation, most of these things are going to occur in other areas, if not now, later, um, because the, the, the vehicles not only move, but, you know, ultimately there's going to be enough road salt in Virginia to match Maine. It's just going to take longer time. So it's a it's a defect that's kind of on the way, if, if you will. And you know, fixing it for everyone is is probably the the safest thing to do.
1: So if if I went to autosafety.org, went to vehicle safety check, would those recalls that show up, do they show me the geographic recalls or is it just yeah. the national?
2: No, it shows you the geographic recalls. They're 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 structured exactly like a normal recall, however, they however they will have the qualification, you know, this recall only applies to vehicles currently registered in x states
1: got it and i apologize if you guys hear a background so there's now a jackhammer outside my window don't um, hear it either i do see some cats <laughs> yeah, yeah well they're non-union so ignore them okay um all right so that's our, our geographic recalls um uh so the other thing is so i watched this 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 video there's this youtube series these guys monroe engineering who love everything elon musk has ever done Uh, It's a little too much, but they had this great line. They're talking about they break down vehicles and they take them apart, and you can see all the components. And it's very smart, like they'll do the costing and the weights and uh, different ways of of building cars better. But they were talking. It's taking apart the battery inside the electric vehicle, and they pointed out that um, there is uh, the repairability of EV battery packs is near zero, and that just struck me as like, oh, that's something we've never like no one discusses cuz there's nothing in an internal combustion engine that is repairability is near zero or is there
2: you know the only thing i could think of in the in the ice engine would be the the engine block something that's you know once it's cracked or damaged significantly there's really no going back and it's an expensive repair
0: oh um, yeah the big piece i don't is think like... it's
2: quite as expensive as battery <laughs>
0: Crankshaft probably isn't repairable, and, um... But you can replace I mean, that, it could, right? It right. Could be, it could be replaced, but if you have a broken crankshaft, it's likely going to cause a lot of other damage that, you know, would trash the engine. But, yeah, there's not very many parts of the internal combustion engine that are not repairable.
1: So, what, A uh, I mean, has there, is there any stats around these batteries just getting destroyed? Besides the one that, you know, explode into flames... That you know, one of these vehicles is in a crash and the battery is just destroyed. I should have sent that question ahead of time, shouldn't I? <laughs> you know,
2: I, I I don't I can't imagine. You know, obviously the batteries that that go into thermal runway and catch on fire are going to be destroyed. I mean, after seeing um, all the problems with lithium-ion batteries and how specifically and carefully they have to be manufactured to not catch on fire. I'm not sure that I would want anything to do with one that had been in a crash or had any possibility of being damaged. Um, maybe that's what they're referring to. Uh, I know that a lot of these batteries are made out of individual cells. And if you know one or two cells is damaged, I've got to imagine that manufacturers are trying to come up with a way to repair those uh, because it, it's, it doesn't seem to make sense. It seems to be a lot of waste. Um, if you're replacing entire battery, the entire battery in the car versus individual possibly damaged cells. But Fred probably knows a lot more about that than me.
1: Yeah, in the video they're showing they're basically all the insulation and protection around the entire battery saying like it's next to impossible to get this stuff off. So that's what I was wondering is yeah, if individual cells die. Is there a way to just replace those or are we just kind of like, yeah, one cell died. Uh, That's however much to replace an entire, the the full pack. I don't know. Fred, do you
0: know? I don't know. I never studied it. I just went to eBay and looked for uh, used lithium ion car batteries and nothing really jumps up there. So I, there's, if there's a market, it's not uh, very well established. I think that uh, it's it's very hazardous. I wouldn't try it. Right. You know, there's just there's a lot of things that can happen, and almost all of them are ba- are bad. So I think that when batteries are replaced, they're replaced as an ensemble, not as individual cells.
1: Okay, well, that's a uh, that's one uh, check minus.
2: I was just trying to save the automakers a lot of money there by replacing cells, but apparently that's not going to work.
1: Well, it looks like they've put a lot of structure around these battery components. Like they've wrapped them. There in is some under.
2: shielding that's required. And I think I've seen that recently in a, um, there was a lawsuit against Tesla, um, where one of their allegations was that Tesla did, had a patent out on, um, a sealing method to prevent thermal runaway, but they hadn't implemented it in the actual vehicles and, or in the vehicle that caught fire. Um, so they're. You know I think in a in a in a large scale thermal runway event, shielding is probably not going to help a lot, but um, in the initial stages of the fire, it could probably provide time to allow passengers to escape.
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking of the scenario where you get into a, a normal fender bender and you know maybe the front part of the battery pack gets pushed in dented. Obviously, I don't want that anymore. And if I could just, hey, can I remove that section and replace that instead of the whole thing? Um, I'd, be, I'd be curious, especially with, you know, uh, I think it's GM's take of, of, it sounds like they're having like really strict cells and, and whatnot inside their battery, but I, I don't know.
0: I think people generally recognize the hazard. I don't think you're going to dent a battery case in a fender bender. Uh, it has to be a pretty serious collision before you're gonna dent the battery case. Um, probably a bigger hazard would be um, debris that you're gonna get kicked up by your tires or you know, you bottom out the car going over a speed bump, something like that.
2: Yeah, that actually but- happened with Tesla once and they had to raise their vehicles um, because they were having battery fires that were being caused because the vehicles were too low to the ground at certain speeds.
1: Oh, and just a, a quick update from last week's episode, the, uh, BMW seat heating thing for you have to pay, subscribe for that service. Uh, right now they're only testing that in South Korea. So right. get your BMW with your heat heated seats right now at your local car dealership. Just don't go to South Korea. Um, all
2: right. So, uh,
1: uh Soon <laughs> Soon enough, yeah, I guess, Um, okay. So you're talking about the, uh, I'm, I'm jumping around, I know, but, uh, so we did the geographic recalls. Um, we talked about the resiliency stuff, but Michael, you mentioned briefly with the Takata and the uh, geographic recalls. So I think Takata
2: is one of the, the, kind of the, the seminal thing when we're not just talking about recalls and safety, but when we're talking about vehicle components failing over time, um, Airbags and these, uh, there's also pretensioners in your car, which use explosive materials to save you. Um, What's a pretensioner? A pretensioner is what fires in your seatbelt to make sure your seatbelt's tight when you're in a collision. Um, and that basically prevents. Um, your seatbelt from being able to loosen during the initial milliseconds of a crash because the pretensioner fires so it essentially just keeps you straight in your seat at least that's how they're designed um it, you still need to make sure that you buckle yourself in properly because a pretensioner is only going to stop the seatbelt where it is so um it's not going to do all the work for you but what we've seen with you know these we've seen some pretensioner recalls recently where the pretensioners are rupturing in a similar similar way to the Takata recall um and a lot of these things you know this isn't this isn't like a recall or a defect where you see these vehicles coming off the lot and there's a defect that's sitting there that could kill you um this is something that takes time to develop years of in in Takata case years of hot humid conditions to um, set these inflators up to the point where they can um, rupture. So Takata is kind of a a good case study to look at and we're talking about how long vehicles last, how long do their components last, um, how long should safety features in a vehicle last. Um, And that was something that General Motors really tried to prove out in some tests that they were doing to try to prove their Takata inflators were safe. Um, They ultimately didn't succeed in that and it's made them recall them. But um, there's still a lot of, you know, nothing's really cleared up. There's no requirement for manufacturers to use long-term, stable, safe explosives in their pretensioners and airbags. Um, Nothing's really changed in that area, so there still remain Questions about whether a a similar occurrence could happen in the future.
1: The the pretenders have explosives because I thought you know everyone's in that scenario where you accidentally yank on the seatbelt too hard and it doesn't move anymore and it just right.
2: That's 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 a different that's a second that's like your first. I don't even know what they call it,
0: but it's an inertial (laughs) latching. That's called an inertial latching system. So this, like when you pull on it, uh, a cog flies out and catches. Um, so the pretensioner or something else, it, it uses uh, the same technology that are used in the airbag inflators to drive a piston or something similar to a piston that latches and pulls the uh, pulls the slack out of the seatbelt. So it's more aggressive than the inertial latch, which is what you're used to when you you pull on
1: the strap. And is this the the explosion behind this? Is it similar to airbags where manufacturers can Mm. put anything they want, like ammonium nitrate and lead?
0: Well, yes. And the purists would say it's not an explosive. It's a rapidly burning material. Okay, so just to be clear, if it explodes, that's bad. If it it burns rapidly as designed, that's good because it's going to do what it's supposed to do. But just to be clear, the same material can cause either phenomenon to happen if it's not properly packaged and maintained and sealed from the environment.
1: Uh, Again, my my standard question: What's the regulations around this?
0: Oh, regulations?
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay, at least okay. Seatbelt material. That material itself is there. Everyone uses the same thing. It it seems. Is there a regulation at least around that material? Cause that stuff seems really strong or is everyone just buying it from the same manufacturer? Is it like zippers?
2: What, uh, what, what they do there is they have a standard that you have to meet during the um, testing. So you could effectively use whatever material you wanted to, as long as you, you met the standard. Um, but I think that, you know, like m- many things manufacturers tend to come together and use similar components <laughs> and similar materials over time for cost savings. And so, That's why you see a lot of seat belts look very similar Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's important for for things like that to be somewhat uniform because you've got you know emergency responders that are having to cut people out of cars and there's a lot of way a lot of reasons why seat belts need to be somewhat uniform although we would like to see um, probably more inflatable seat belts and things that could, could provide even better protection in crashes.
1: And what kind of uh, non-quick burning explosion will those inflatable seat belts need?
0: You know, well, as, as a service to our friends in NHTSA who are listening to this uh, podcast, I am, uh, I've done a little research and I can offer three standards that they could adapt and use for the uh, testing of and qualification of these devices. One is Mill Handbook 1512, which is by the Department of Defense, the other is uh, msfc spec 3635 by our friends at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, the Marshall Space Flight Center. And the third is MIL-STANDARD-1576 by our friends in the Air Force. Electroexplosive subsystem safety requirements and test methods for space systems. So any one of these will tell people exactly what to do to make these Electro explosive devices, which is the generic term for what all of these are safe, long lasting, and durable. So, you're welcome, Nitsa.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know how to react to that, but that was amazing. Maybe start off instead of mill spec, blah blah blah, start off with what you, what was called something explosive. That sounds more exciting because I, I fell asleep briefly until you are like, oh, explosion.
0: There you go. Electro-explosive. Yeah. Well, I could, uh, it's kind of fun to read the whole title. <laughs> Electro-explosive. I
1: mean, I love that album. Was that uh, an early Genesis album?
0: <laughs> that would be good. That would actually be a good name for a band, wouldn't it? Electro-explosive subsystems. I like that. <laughs> right. I, they're on tour with Kraftwerk right now.
1: Um okay but so what we were just talking about was great with the the the, the standards around the seatbelts for emergency responders now i imagine with all of these very quick burning things that emergency responders because they'd want to know what's in there to put that out because sometimes that stuff won't go off i imagine there'll be a situation where it's a dud and it might go off later on and with like battery fires the, you know, my local fire department probably needs to know, hey, what did they use in here so we can be safe and put it out quickly?
2: You know, I haven't seen it. I think that's probably rare. I know that there were, you know, there have been different types of air, airbag issues over the years where airbags were releasing chemicals that were, you know, causing skin abrasions and burns and you know, I've seen one or two, one case maybe where a, a mechanic or someone was working on a vehicle with a Takata airbag and was seriously injured, maybe even killed by a rupture there. But um, I, I would be much more concerned as an emergency responder about what's going on with the gas tank and the fluids in the car or the battery um, and I I, than the, the possibility of a pretensioner or, or an airbag rupture.
1: I'm checking eBay right now to see if I can buy a Takata airbag. Um, no, I cannot. Mm, that's that's a shame. Oh, there's a book, though, called In Your Face. You
2: shouldn't be able to. I think that they've, or at least supposedly, have done a, a fairly good job of trying to scrub the market of those things. Um,
1: no, I, I see it right here. An Opal Insignia Airbag Sports Tour Takata pre-owned $89.64 plus $118 shipping from Spain.
2: See if that one is a uh, ammonium nitrate one that's the recall. I don't think it would be. Although shipping it from Spain, that's, and it's an Opal.
1: Opal, right. You know, they're known for- What
2: are you going to install that in?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just my kitchen chair be a fun little prank for people.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I, I sold my Opal last year
1: that's disturbing you know it's a collector's item (laughs) um oh yeah yeah they're they're all opal airbags and uh airbag there's a few uh side right seats for audis and pre-owned who's buying a pre-owned airbag
2: like i think someone who's trying to save money on a repair typically i mean we've we've seen a big counterfeit market in the united states wait counterfeit
1: Um, airbags
2: Oh, yeah, there's there are people that sell basically inflators that don't work. um, Pretending they work so that they can make money. Does that shock you in America? Uh, What?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. I mean, what comes out instead of an airbag? Is it a flower that shoots water in your face?
2: Well, it either either it doesn't come out or there's no bag or, you know, there's a million things it could be. But it's it's a fake airbag essentially.
0: There are counterfeit parts sold for uh, aircraft propellers and aircraft engine parts. So if, if you want to get scared, we can talk about counterfeit parts in general, but there's a, there's a big market for that and a lot of uh, willing suppliers. Unfortunately, a lot of willing customers too.
1: Yeah. All right, so the, instead of stringing fiber optic cables throughout rural America, I think we'll get into making counterfeit airbags. Does that sound like a plan?
0: Growth industry.
2: <laughs> like the flowers idea. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think that'd be funny. You know, hey, you're about to get in a crash. Out comes a little clown. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> right. Happy Mother's Day. You hit the guardrail. Uh all right. I think uh I, th- I think we've, you know, got enough. I think we've, you know, Fred's told Nitsa about some very fun new band opening up across the country for for uh craft work. Um yeah, and we all know that uh don't visit Buffalo in your car that you bought in Arizona. Does that sound about right?
2: You know, I also, you know, I think our, our slogan back then it was it's it's not hot in Death Valley and it doesn't snow in Buffalo, because there were there were recalls for there were heat recalls that excluded California and Death Valley, which is the hottest place in America, as well as cold uh, recalls that excluded Buffalo, which was, you know, it's just patently absurd on its face, which is why we adopted that as our our slogan for our campaign against that, that practice. But it continues geographic recalls, March on.
1: All right. For that and more exciting news, join autosafety.org, go there, open your wallet up, you know, and and they'll keep fighting the good fight. Michael, Fred, it's been another exciting experience and there's still a jackhammer right outside my window
0: well good luck with that and thank you so much thanks guys right. Bye. for more information visit www.autosafety.org